0: Children 9 through 12, uh, 9 through th- uh, 3 through 9. You know, if you want to leave, you can just, you know, <laughs> just easy. Those of you who are staying with us, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel 15. We are back in our sermon series in 1 Samuel. However, this is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be
1: jumping around quite a bit this morning. And it will be pretty evident why. Hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, looking at verses 1
0: through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them in the way in which they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, devote destruction to all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman,
1: child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey.
0: Many of our visitors may be looking or those hearing say, "Uh uh-oh, what did I just sign up for? But This is the text we're going to be looking at this morning. And as I always like to say, as we read God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word.
1: Open our eyes to your truth and let us receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. We
0: are in 1 Samuel, and we move into this very difficult passage of 1 Samuel 15. Now, as we look at 1 Samuel 15, this, it's not about attacking the Amalek. Uh, he's not about attacking this tribe here. The point of 1 Samuel 15 is actually about obedience and actual Saul's refusal and inability to obey God. To see, obedience is better than sacrifice. The problem, though, is as we move into 1 Samuel 15, we can't get past. Verse three, because we look at this and immediately we're drawn into, wait a minute, what did God just tell this people to do? Wait a minute, how does this work out? How does this match the God of the Bible that we see? Uh, how does this match Jesus that we see in Matthew? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll take my
1: yoke upon you. On, and learn from me where I am gentle and lowly at heart. How does this match a God who is gentle and lowly at heart? And so it's a difficult
0: passage, and in fact, it's the passage that oftentimes enemies and critics of Christianity love to throw at us, love to say, you believe in a God of love, but yet you see these Old Testament passages. Or talks about genocide, it talks about, or at least what they call genocide. It's not actually genocide, as we'll discuss later on as we move forward. Or discusses these, these calls to what seems like wiping out an entire people. It seems harsh. How could you believe in a God like that? And if we're honest, a lot of us, we really deeply struggle with it. And so for many people... We believe God, we believe in the truth, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but we look at passages like this and we're like, ooh, I don't know what to do with that, so let's just not think about it. Let's just not deal with it, right?
1: Let's talk about something else. Let's maybe, let's hear a happier message. Well, that doesn't work for a couple reasons. Number one, this passage isn't going away.
0: And so if we don't deal with it, we leave those who are weak in faith or vulnerable in faith, those perhaps like teenagers going to college or those who are struggling with doubt, we leave them open to the attacks and the smears of those who are against Christianity. We also leave ourselves with lopsided view of God, of who God is. God reveals himself through the Bible. Now, the chore for us, or I should say the joyful task for us, is to actually not take thin descriptions of scriptures, but to view it and to dive into it, to meditate upon it, and to understand it. And in doing so, what we find is as we see throughout scripture, God doesn't give us some willy-nilly portraits of himself that don't match up from from one book to the other, but tells a coherent story from beginning to end. And so the question for us is, how do we see that coherent story told over and over and over again in Scripture? How do we make sense of that? And when we do so, what we find is a God so good, so glorious, so compelling... that even in the year 2023... We find our hearts longing for his goodness, longing for his justice. We may not realize it, but it's there that
1: we have an appetite for it, that we haven't been able to put away. And so we deal
0: with the tasks this morning of dealing with this difficult passage. And in fact, it's such a large passage that, or it's such a difficult task, one that is thrown, our culture really doesn't know how to deal with. We're actually going to deal with it in two weeks, okay? So we're going to deal with parts of it this week as we look this week at the character of God. And what do we see through the character of God? And we're going to be looking at tools that we find in biblical theology. And so in other words, we're not going to just stick in First Samuel 15. We're going to be looking at how God reveals himself throughout Scripture how do we see a coherent story being told of who God is? And we're going to come to grips with that reality. So, and then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the specifics of what is actually being told, both here in 1 Samuel, but also in some of the, the passages in the book of Joshua that we often find very difficult as well. And this is one of those issues that many of us, and I know some of you Uh, Some people have come to me and said, you know what, I'm not going to be here. And some of you said, man, I'm really glad that you're tackling this because this has been something I've struggled with and I want to deal with. And my hope, let me just say a couple of things within that. Number one, um, I'm dealing with you with a way to deal with it. There are very fine, good evangelical scholars who may
1: deal with it in a little bit different way. And that's okay. Secondly, um, I can't pretend that I'm going to be able to
0: answer every question that you have satisfactorily. There is a sense in which we step back and acknowledge our, how finite we are as human beings and our limited scope and understanding and how much we are shaped by our current cultural moment. And we often assume that our current cultural moment is the most enlightened, the most prosperous the most well thought out and that is not by even even any remote standard the case and so there's a sense in which we submit to the goodness of god and my hope is that through this process though i have given you the evidence that even if you're not a hundred percent satisfied with the answers you're a hundred percent satisfied in who god is to be able to trust
1: him in the places you don't understand, that he is faithful and that he is good.
0: I've, my very first ministry really even kind of starts off dealing with this. Um, by God's grace, I wasn't a youth pastor very long because I was terrible at it. But before I was in, went to seminary, I had a, a short stint, or at the church where I was at, they decided, hey, you're a young guy, you want to go into ministry, so let's we'll stick you with the youth. They didn't have anybody. And then they gave me a curriculum, and the very first lesson I had in the curriculum was going through the book of Joshua, dealing with these. And I had, you know, several teenagers who were pretty liberal, um, who struggle with these issues, and I just left every single Wednesday
1: night, coming back and feeling like I just got beat up. This is a difficult one for us to deal with. But I can say... That when we stop dealing with it in a shallow way,
0: we can actually find God's glory actually increases. And I think we can actually find ourselves more in love with God in the process. Now, as we begin within this, as I said, we're going to be looking at biblical theology. To answer the question, we are first going to devote this week to saying, well, who is this God? that reveals himself. Sometimes people have tried to, to, to almost compartmentalize God into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so they looked and it's like, you know, we've even had that, that saying, sometimes, you know, when we threaten that we're going to bring wrath, we're going to go all Old Testament on you, right? And what is that implying within that? Is we're going to be very harsh. But the truth is, when we actually read the Old Testament, we find a beautifully merciful, god a god of remarkable grace and mercy and at the same time as we went through the book of revelation we see also a god who is fierce in his judgment upon sin the bible does not give two different gods or a God who changes who he is from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but rather a coherent and consistent God throughout who reveals himself. And we can find this right away in the book of Exodus chapter 34. And here's a place where Moses had asked God to reveal his glory to him. And in revealing his glory, God declares his name And declares who he is, and he says in Exodus chapter 34, he says this, verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. So we here we see a God of incredible mercy, but also a God of justice. And that begins our starting point as we look at this. Now, real quick, if this is something that you struggle with, again, I can't pretend that I'm going to be able to cover this issue sufficiently in two sermons. So let me give you a couple of helpful hints uh, uh, a couple of helpful resources within there. The, the two, first two resources that I would mention that are probably would be my first go to resources are the books uh, Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copin? And then the second is um, The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. Now, uh, I will admit uh, also to give credit where credit's due. Uh, the Is God a Moral Monster is probably the resource I, leans, I lean on the most heavily in these two sermons. Uh, it's an extraordinarily good book, and so I highly recommend it. And so you can imagine most of my thought process as I give it to you is probably in some way regurgitated from there. Also, I will say The Skeletons in God Closet is a little bit easier to read, but the truth is he pretty much leans on Paul Copan's book. So Paul Copan is kind of the beginning place that most people go to. It is a little bit harder to read, so if you want something a little less, or I should say a little bit easier to digest, Skeletons in God's Closet. However, if you want to go to the kind of a, a much more comprehensive source, Paul Copan's book is where I would start you. Now, as we look at who God is, the first thing that we see in this self-revelation of who God is, is He is a loving God of patient mercy. He's a loving God of patient mercy. And we need to understand that one of the reasons that we ourselves struggle in the year 2023 with this particular issue is because of the Christian influence upon our Western society. It is the fact of... Christianity's influence on the way we think, the way we give each individual human dignity, that we love justice, that we love mercy, is actually a reflection upon our Western societies uh, being influenced by Christianity. People of long past didn't necessarily have that big a problem with this issue. Our problem stems directly from our in being influenced by Christianity within there, as because what we see is a very consistent picture of who God is is that He is overwhelmingly a God of loving, patient ministry, uh, mercy. Excuse me. And what we see from the beginning of God's plan of redemption all the way to the end is God's purpose is to actually redeem wayward sinners. And so if we go all the way back to the founding of the people of Israel, which takes us all the way back to Abraham, Abraham being the first one who is called to be his people, and from Abraham the nation of Israel will be about. What do we see in the very first promises to God? As God calls Abraham out of, out of where he was into this new land, he says to them in, verse, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, He says this, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So in other words, why is he going to bless these people? Why is he going to give them privilege? Is it because that they are strong? Is it because they're more holy? No, it's because they are recipients of his grace and he is giving giving it to them for the purpose that they would become a blessing to the rest of the nations. And he says, I will
1: bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And
0: in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what do we see right off the bat with this forming of the, the nation of Israel and the promise to bless this particular people? The purpose is so that all the nations... All the nations which had turned their back and was in open rebellion against God. By choosing him, by choosing Abraham, by choosing this family, the ultimate purpose was to redeem them, to release them from the curse of sin in which they willingly moved into, and so that all the nations would be blessed. That is the goal within there. Secondly, Isaiah chapter 19. So here we have a people Uh, that's already formed, we're already gone through the the monarchy in Israel, is Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar of the Lord at its border, and it will be a sign and a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender to deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows unto the Lord and perform worship. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into the Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now listen, and in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be the Egyptians, my people, and Assyrians, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now what is he saying there? He's he's looking at two great enemies of Israel. Israel. Egypt, the one who had enslaved them for 430 years, who had received the who had received the plagues to release them, which was spiritual warfare to release the people. He's saying, "What I'm doing in their midst, I'm doing to redeem them, that they're going to become my people." Same thing with Assyria, Assyria, this remarkably evil empire, who is ultimately God's vehicles to destroy the northern nation. God says, "My purpose." They're going to be my people. In fact, he even gives them even footing he's with Israel. He's saying, Egypt, you're my people. You're going to be a third. Assyria, you're going to be a third. Israel, you're going to be a third. Now, is he trying to make an exact you know, pie chart of who his people is? No, his point is he's going to make them equal with Israel. This is who God reveals. This is his intention in the Old Testament, how he is revealing his nature, his mercy His desire to redeem. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 6. Listen. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of uh, uh, Philistia. And I will take away its blood from its mouth. And its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp my house as a a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So what's this saying? Here, the Philistines, long-time enemy of Israel, constantly in battle. We've been seeing this in 1 Samuel. What's he saying? I'm going to remove their abominations. They're going to become my people, right? Just like the Jebusites. The Jebusites, are going to become important in a minute. Who are they? They're actually a Canaanite clan that ended up becoming incorporated into the people of Israel. Rather than being wiped out, they became incorporated. So he's saying, these, these Philistines, I'm going to make them my people, right? Is this a bloodthirsty God who just wants to wipe everybody out? No. Psalm 87, verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, that's Egypt, and Babylon. So two great powers that were historical enemies of Israel. Egypt and Babylon. Behold, the Philistia and Tyre and Cush, that's Ethiopia. This one was born there, they say, and Zion shall be Uh, It shall be said this one and that one were born in her when the Most High Himself will establish her and the Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one is born here. In other words, He's saying He's going to take this people group and they're going to be just like Israel. So we see His heart and His desire to show mercy into the nations, to bless even in the Old Testament, right? But we also see Specific examples. So you might say, well, that's a nice little theory, but he didn't he ever actually show mercy. And We see him showing mercy to people all over the Old Testament. Right off the bat, in the very first Exodus, right? Which is bringing judgment towards the people in, in Egypt. But yet, what we find in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, as they're leaving Egypt, and the, and the people of Israel journeyed from the Ramses to Sukkoth, About 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So in other words, right here, those Egyptians who looked and they saw and they feared the living God, they wanted to be named among the people of Israel. God allowed them to be part of his people. Right? Right? The Jebusites, I already referred to them. If we look at Deuteronomy 7.1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land in which you're entering to take possession of it and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the, that whoever it is that begins with a G, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and more mightier than yours. But they weren't. They actually submitted to the Lord and were brought in. We could go on, we could talk in Jericho. We had Rahab the harlot who acknowledged as he saw that the people were coming in and says, you know what? You guys, the living God is on your side. We know what happened in Israel. We know that your God is the true God. Not only was she spared of her destruction, her and her whole family, she became part of the lineage of Jesus. Ruth the Moabitess, Once again, placed her faith in Yahweh. We talked about this when we went through the book of Ruth. An outsider brought in Uriah. We're going to talk about him. He was one of David's mighty men. He was actually a Canaanite. One who had submitted himself to Yahweh. Despite his heritage. So we see a God who not only theoretically promises... The redemption and the mercy of the people, but we also see one who actively redeems those who submit and turn to him, who trust in him, who believe in him. Not only that, but he set up, as he set up Israel, he didn't set them up to be this bloodthirsty, warlike people. They weren't supposed to have a standing army, they weren't supposed to have a paid army. When they were established as a nation, and not only that, as He establishes who they are to be as a people. Notice if you remember in the New Testament, the scribe asked Jesus, and He says, "What am I to do to inherit eternal life?" And what is the response? You want to sum up the law and the prophets. It can be summed up as this: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews scribe, recognized that he was absolutely right. The point of loving your neighbors yourself is a major part of the law. So we, we look at Leviticus 19.34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what were they to do when they had a stranger who would come in? Uh, As one who was not an Israelite would come in, they would move in. Love them as yourself. Remember who you were, that you were once strangers, that you were once a sojourner in Egypt. Show them kindness, show them love. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus twenty four twenty two. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and the native. For I am the Lord your God. So in other words, when they come in, don't say, Well, we're going to set up these loving laws for us, but we get to treat you differently because you're a foreigner. No, you treat them by the same
1: laws that you treat and govern yourselves. Additionally, we already talked about Uriah,
0: the Hittite, the Canaanite. And what we see is, and we're going to get into this, David incredibly sins against him.
1: Essentially rapes his wife, impregnates her, and kills him to get rid of her. Horrific. But God didn't wink at David's sin just because he was
0: God's chosen king of Israel, and he was just some or some Canaanite, he came and he judged David harshly. We'll get to that. Some of you may not feel like it was harsh enough, but we'll get to that in a
1: little bit as we move through Samuel. But what you see is this Canaanite was given the same justice even against God's chosen king. The next thing that I want to point out is this God of mercy, is he is a
0: God who also very mercifully is waiting for the right time for judgment. And that's an important thing as we look into God's commands to bring the people in. Take a look at uh, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 13. So God is giving the promises of Abraham, who has not yet had a child, Still waiting on the promises of God. And so he's telling them, here's how this is going to work. In Genesis 15, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So he's saying, right off the bat, Know that I'm going to take this people. I promised you this land for your descendants. But I'm going to remove them from this land, and they're going to actually be
1: servants, and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. Why? Why? Well, we see. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve,
0: and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, for you shall be buried in a good old age And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So in other words, why is God holding them back? Because the sinful wickedness, the point of no return for the Canaanites hasn't yet reached. They haven't reached that place. They're not reached the place where God is ready to punish them. He knows they're going to reach that place. They will reach that place of ultimate wickedness in which his judgment demands justice. And he will bring it. But he's going to wait. And while he waits, he's allowing his people to suffer for over 400 years. So another, keep in mind, 430 years. How old are we as a country in the United States? A little bit over 200. A little bit over 200 years old. So twice, almost twice, what we've experienced as a nation, he allows his people to suffer in slavery,
1: to be patient, to allow patience for the sin of those he's going to judge. He's a God who is patient in his mercy. And this is something the Israelites understood and well knew. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. You remember, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria.
0: Which, keep in mind, Assyria was about as bad and wicked as you can get. They're really, really bad. They glorified in their uh, just inhumanity towards their victims.
1: And they would be ultimately God's chosen vehicle to wipe out the northern kingdom. And Jonah hated them. He absolutely hated them. Did not want to go. And we can't
0: figure out for the first three chapters, why is he bringing so much calamity upon himself to avoid going to this people, these Assyrians? Why is he doing that? And we find that after his preaching, they respond. They respond, and God relents his judgment. And he's angry. And so he says, in verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So the Jews in the Old Testament didn't view God as one who was harsh towards their neighbors, one who was an exacting, bloodthirsty God. In fact, he didn't even want to go to his enemies because he knew how gracious and merciful
1: and kind God was. That's how they understood the Old Testament. In the book of Jonah, what is its purpose? It's an indictment against the people
0: of Israel that they had not been the kingdom of priests that they were supposed to be. They
1: were not a people who was glorifying God and reaching out into the nations. He is a God of mercy and love The part of being a God of mercy and love is being a God of justice as well. There's a theologian, Miserolf Boff.
0: I have no idea if I'm saying his name right. He's a brilliant theologian at the University of Yale. And uh, he was brought up in Yugoslavia and was witness to many of the horrors of Yugoslavia where all saw churches destroyed, women raped, people just, true genocide and ethnic cleansing that took place. And he makes this comment, and it's a long comment, that I think it's important to, to realize and to read in these moments. He says this, I used to think that the wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a, it was a casualty of the war of the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I couldn't imagine God not being angry. Or think of, think of Rwanda in the last decade, in the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death to one in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn bloodbath? but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with him? Though I used to complain about the indecency of, God's, of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful
1: because God is love. God's righteous response to evil and wickedness is his judgment and justice. And we should know, we should long for that. We know
0: when we see civilizations in which there's brutality,
1: we think, how can that be allowed to continue to go on? We oftentimes want to minimize... God's wrath because we fear it upon
0: ourselves, But in truth, we're not a society that has moved past us. We understand this. Much of the the cries out for social justice that we see is a recognition there needs to be justice. There needs to be something done to take place in the face of evil. Love isn't minimizing sin. That's not what it is. And so we see, we've already, we seen that what God is doing is he is bringing judgment upon the people who are lost in their wickedness. Now, you might say, well, aren't we all lost in our wickedness? Yes, we are. And that's the beauty of grace. The question isn't really, in many ways, why some people were judged. But the question is, why weren't we all judged? But notice what he says in Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord brought me into the possession of the land. So, in other words, he's saying, don't think that you're coming into this because you're such great and wonderful people. And in truth, Israel certainly demonstrated that in the book of Judges very quickly. Whereas it is because. Of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it's worth noting that God promises the same language, the same words of being removed from the promised land upon his own people Israel if they become like the nations. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. I've already talked many times about how the northern ten tribes were displaced. They were taken out of the the promised land just as Adam and Eve were removed from the garden because of their sin and judgment. So the people of Israel were moved and judged. There was patience. There was renewals at times. But God ultimately judged them and and did the same with the the southern tribe of Judah through Babylon, displaced them, removed them from the land. In other words, saying, I'm doing the exact same thing to you as you did to the Canaanites before you because of your wickedness. And ultimately, we know that the Jews were ultimately uh, replaced, removed once again from the, the land of Israel and the rejection of Jesus.
1: What we see
0: within here is a way of God working his salvation, his redemption through judgment. Now what does that mean? There's a scholar at Southern Seminary, uh, James Hamilton. He wrote a book, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. Now, he says this is the heart of biblical theology. I don't think he's right in that. I don't think it's the heart, but I think it's an important theme that you see throughout. And so he says this, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament, becoming paradigmatic even in the New. When God saves his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. This is not limited to the Old Testament enemies, such as the Philistines. At the cross, and this is important, at the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out. John twelve thirty one. At the consummation, Jesus will come to afflict those who afflict his people. And we see this throughout. We see, right, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. What was the the result? The result? Judgment. But through the judgment was the promise of a seed, of a deliverer. They were sent out, but through the promise of being sent out was the hope that God would redeem them through that scene to bring them back in. We see this, what he was explaining. In Israel, they're under slavery. They were released from their slavery, but through punishment, through judgment of the ones who were enslaving them. And keep in mind that as you look through the plagues that were taking place, this was spiritual warfare. There was a cosmic warfare that was being taking place that we ultimately looked at as foreshadowing the ultimate warfare that would take place on the cross. And so we continue on. You can see that pattern throughout. I'm not going to spend time bringing it out every time. But what you see is in our ultimate hope of the cross, the place in which we go to to see the great glory of God, the magnificence of his salvation towards us. As we look to the place where we can say we can know that we are loved, that we are free from our sin, that we are brought in to become God's people as we place the cross upon Our hope that he paid for all of our sins. What are we saying? That through the judgment that was placed upon Jesus Christ, he actually judged the ruler of this world
1: and our salvation was brought forth. So as we baptize, which is
0: a symbol of what has taken place, that we've been united with Christ, we've been united with him His death,
1: judgment, and brought forth a newness of life. I know that's a little dense, but what you see is this
0: pattern in which God brings forth his grace and mercy,
1: but he does it through judgment upon the wickedness and the powers of this world that takes place. Now, here's the issue with this.
0: What we see is a God of incredible mercy and patience, a God of justice. But we see quite clearly a loving God who patiently and perfectly deals with our corruption. You see, here is where the rubber meets the road,
1: folks. Why is this so uncomfortable for us? Because we know we deserve judgment. We you know, we deserve it. And
0: as much as we like to think of ourselves as this enlightened society, when you look at the statistics of modern warfare, it is far more bloody towards the innocence than anything the Bible describes. And I'll talk more about that next, next week. That a lot of our caricatures that we think of is not accurate when we think of the, the judgment. But let's say I'm wrong on that. What we still see from biblical theology is a God that by which we throw ourselves
1: down at his mercy and cry out his glory and wonder and grace. We can hardly stand at the past and say judgment.
0: Not only have our wars been so violent and extreme, killing, as Miserable Voff pointed out, some pretty horrific deaths, but even our wars in World War II, in Vietnam, in Korea, The death toll on the innocents compared to, as much as we find it horrific, the amount of soldiers
1: who were afflicted. The people were afflicted even more. The innocents
0: that were done. Not only that, as much as we can cry out at
1: the injustice, we have to acknowledge our society loves death. We can cry out, how could
0: God do this? The one who has shown himself to be perfectly good. And yet we,
1: for convenience sake, kill how many millions of babies through the practice of abortion. The truth is, we are not nearly as civilized as we
0: like to think ourselves to be. But God is gloriously patient and just and merciful. And that becomes our hope. It isn't to explain God away so that we detooth him from all of his judgment. But rather, he is a God who placed all the judgment due to us on the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Joshua Ryan Butler, in his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, he says this. Abraham's family flips our question on his head. What is the question? Israel's question is not, God, if you're good, why would you ever intervene with the empires of this world? And instead, it says, God, if you're good, why do you wait so
1: long? And Abraham's answer to his suffering children is, God is more patient than we are. And we see in this patience the glory of Jesus Christ. We see in him the fulfillment of all the promises, even to the Canaanite
0: people. Notice in Matthew 12, the Canaanite woman who comes to her, who humbles herself and submits to her, to Jesus. And Jesus acknowledges her faith and responds in his ministry to her. He calls Israel, when they say, Who is my neighbor? He gives them an example of a Samaritan, an ethnic group the Jews hated.
1: He says this is an example of a neighbor. He calls out the judgment of all the cities in Matthew chapter
0: 11 who reject him, who refuse to bow before him, who want to find a righteousness on their own terms, which many times involve them viewing themselves better as the other nations. In the end, after all that cries of justice, he says, Come to me, all you who are lowly and heavy laden. I will give you he goes on to say, I am gentle and
1: lovely at heart.
0: He is; These are not thin accounts of God. And ultimately, we see as we went through almost a year in the book of Revelation, we saw
1: how patiently God takes and cherishes all the prayers of the saints who are suffering. And he stores them up. And he will ultimately bring judgment upon a world Filled with corruption and evil. And in dealing with that world and that corruption, he brings life, hope, goodness, beauty. We bring the corruption. He brings redemption. We bring the stain of darkness and vile evil and death. He brings life. This is a merciful God. And in Jesus, we find our true hope. The question is,
0: are you trusting in your salvation through the judgment upon Jesus Christ? Or are you trusting that you're good enough
1: to withstand the judgment of God? You're not. I'm not. I can't look and snarl at
0: the wickedness of the Amorites. Because I know I deserve justice.
1: I have hurt people. I have sinned in wicked ways. My hope is that that judgment was placed upon Jesus. Where is your hope? The good news is, friend, when you place your hope in
0: Jesus, you find a God who loves you and moves towards you with an
1: ocean of unending grace. You don't need to be afraid of him. You can embrace his incredible love and generosity in your life. Won't you do that?